Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books Archaeology. I'm your host, Sam Pfister, and joining me to talk about his new book, Olga Tufnell's Perfect Journey, Letters and Photographs of an Archaeologist in the Levant and Mediterranean, co-edited with Roz Henry, is Dr. Jack Green. Dr. Green received his PhD from the Institute of Archaeology, University College London, and later held various leadership roles in museums for over 15 years. Dr. Green recently served as Associate Director of the American Center of Research in Amman, Jordan, and is the Project Director of the Temple of the Winged Lions Cultural Resource Management Initiative at Petra. Dr. Green will soon be starting a new position in August as Director of the Miami University Art Museum in Oxford, Ohio. Dr. Green, it is truly a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Sam. It's wonderful to be here, and I really appreciate this invitation to talk to you about this book. Of course, yeah, it was a joy to read and and something that I'm very personally interested in, uh, which is, you know, early 20th century, mid-20th century, 1920s, 1930s, history of archaeology uh, in the Middle East and specifically in the Levant. So this is very, very interesting to read Olga's letters. Um, so to get us started, who is Olga Tufnell, the, the, the subject of this book, and, and whose letters were edited in this volume? Thank you. Yes. So Olga Tufnell um, was a British archaeologist who was born in 1905 and died in 1985. Um, she was born in Essex in England, and she came from a, um, a fairly... Uh, well-to-do and influential family, the Tufnells, um, and grew up on a uh, you know a large estate and had many uh, privileges in that sense. But um, she she went on to become uh, an archaeologist mainly through contacts uh, through her family and the uh, the Petries, uh, Flinders Petrie and Hilda Petrie, who were. Uh, famous in Egyptian archaeology, but also in Palestinian archaeology. Um, she started out um, after studying drama and also um, painting and the arts as um, uh, an older teen um, and young woman. She, after World War One, she was really looking for uh, new opportunities as a young woman. Um, she wasn't sure quite what she wanted to do. Uh, it was through a connection with her mother, uh, Blanche Tufnell, who was f- friends with Hilda Petrie, um, that she became an assistant secretary for the British uh, uh, School of Archaeology uh, in Egypt, based in London. And she ended up uh, getting involved in um helping out with the exhibitions that Flinders Petrie was putting on and Hilda Petrie were putting on in London. And she learned a lot about archaeology of Egypt and Palestine through that engagement. And eventually she went on to uh, join those archaeological digs and projects and travel throughout the Mediterranean and the parts of the Middle East. Um, She was also... Um, she continued to study archaeology throughout her life, and she went on to uh, publish uh, the uh, Lakish volumes, which was an archaeological site uh, in modern-day Israel. Uh, then in Palestine, she uh, published and co-edited that volume uh, in those volumes in the 1950s. And so she really devoted her life to her studies in archaeology and in research, um, and also had an interest in uh, museums and exhibitions as well later in her life. Um, So she had a very diverse career. She was uh, really, you could describe as an amateur archaeologist in the sense that she never had a formal training as an archaeologist. She didn't have a degree in archaeology, and she learned most of the things that she learned uh, effectively on the job. Uh, so she um, was very active for about 10 years in the, uh, 1927 to 1938, which is the focus of the book. And that's where she gained most of her archaeological knowledge and experience. And, and were a lot of archaeologists practicing at this time uh, amateurs? 
um, rather than trained university trained archaeologists? That's a really good question. I think that it was a mix at this time. I think that in the 19th century, um, certainly in in the United Kingdom, archaeology was still seen as not a real subject as such. And it wasn't really until the later part of the 19th century that it began to be taken seriously as a subject in its own right. Um, There were um, very few formal archaeology courses. It might be that it was in sort of classics or Egyptology that people would gain these these kinds of skills or um, and I think with a greater understanding of the value of archaeological knowledge, uh, it became more um, specialized. And so at this time, you're beginning to see institutions uh, emerge and specialized centers for the study of archaeology, uh, for example, at University of Oxford um, and other universities, as well as um, beginnings of the Institute of Archaeology in London as well, and University College London. Um, I think that she was among other amateurs at that time who had maybe learned uh, sort of as they they went along or or learned from attending lectures or or special evening classes. And there were emerging professionals at that time. And some of those contemporaries included people like Dorothy Garrard and um, Kathleen Kenyon, who were earning degrees uh, in the 20s and 30s uh, in archaeology. So she was not unique, but also there was a growing uh, growing arena for prof- uh, professional archaeologists as well. Uh, so tell us about A Perfect Journey. Can you, give, can you give us a bit of an overview of the book? Absolutely. So A Perfect Journey is based on Olga Tofnell's letters and her photographs, which are in the Palestine Exploration Fund in London. They're part of an archive. Um, and the PEF or the Palestine Exploration Fund is well worth a visit. Uh, you can also uh, see their collect- some of their collections online as well. So those letters and photographs were donated to the Palestine Exploration Fund uh, at some point after Olga Tufnell's death. And the letters are written largely to her mother uh, between 1927 and 1938. And what the book does is it presents these letters um, as well as um, a large number of her photographs and photographs from other archival sources, for example, the British Museum um, and the uh, Egypt Exploration Society, among others. And it provides introductory materials that sets the scene for the letters of her time uh, working as an archaeologist, uh, mostly in Palestine at that time on a number of archaeological digs. Those digs included Tel Farah or Tel El Farah South, which is in modern-day Israel today, uh, then in Palestine, very close to the uh, Gaza Strip. Uh, Also Tel El Ajul, which is in modern-day, the modern-day Gaza Strip today. Uh, And also uh, Lakish or Lakish, uh, which is Tel El uh, which is in uh, close to uh, Hebron uh, in modern-day Israel, and then in Palestine, close to the village of Kubeba. And the, her time as an archaeologist is reflected in these letters, and we provide the Ros and I provide the background to these uh, letters and her experiences. Um, there's also a lot of information about. Uh, travel because she was documenting all the travel that she was undertaking as she went to these archaeological digs and also um, within the areas that she was working to. So I think that um, what the book does is it provides this this broader history of the archaeological background um, beyond the uh, site reports, it gives us a sense of life, social life, uh, and a sense of social history of the connections between these networks of our networks of archaeologists and the local people that she uh, interacted with. Um, so it's a very rich uh, resource. Um, so we've got this period really of ten years, which it's documenting and provide a bit of a background of what happened next after uh, after 
Olga Tufnell uh, finished her travels and excavations there too. Great. So where does the title A Perfect Journey come from? Uh, that's a really good question. So um, you notice that the perfect journey in the title is sort of inverted commas around it. And that's for two reasons. One is that it's a quotation from one of Olga's own letters uh, from 1927. And this is her first encounter uh, with Egypt. So the first trip that she took was under invitation from Flinders Petrie to go to the site of Cal. Uh, Al-Kabir in Egypt, in Middle Egypt. And so she's traveling for her first time as a young woman, experiencing uh, the coming by boat and then by train to this site. And she writes to her mother, this was a perfect journey so far. And Roz, um, Roz and I really felt that that really reflected her overall uh, sense of adventure um, and also her sense of idealism as well. I think that one of the things about that quote is that there's a certain irony because um, later on uh, in the letters and in the book, um, we we encounter the experience that Olga had, a rather tragic end to the experience, which was with the uh, murder of the director of the excavations um, at Tell it the way, uh, James Leslie Starkey. And so the perfect journey is kind of um, ironic in that sense. It was perfect, but then there were imperfections. There were challenges and major tragedies that happened as well. And so that's what that particularly, that title alludes to. So Olga's, uh, Olga Tufnell's letters reveal a lot about the behind the scenes of, of life as an archaeologist during her approximately 10 years. Um, what do her letters tell us about life on an archaeological excavation at the time? What what were her experiences there? That's a really good question. So, um, maybe, maybe specifically, uh, like dig life at the act at the actual excavation itself. Yeah, I think that um, with her time on the digs, it's interesting that the letters they don't really tell us a lot about what they're finding so much you know there's here and there there are mentions of we um you know we excavated this particular area we're beginning to find you know cup marks or pottery or handles with stamps on them and things like that which are interesting just in themselves that she finds these particular findings um, important enough to share with her mother her mother might find them interesting to read about um but they also provide um, sort of some of the background of the day-to-day, just how people were working, um, how they organized the archaeological labor uh, with the local workers who were working on the site, as well as the Egyptian workers, the Guftis, who had come from Egypt to work on these projects uh, in Palestine in the 1920s and 30s. Um, they give us some insights into the fact that these amateur archaeologists really didn't always know, they didn't have much experience. And Olga turns up, Olga Tufnell turns up at Telfara and she she remarks that really nobody really knew exactly what they were doing. Um, and they kind of had to follow them, follow each other and understand what, you know, to get the recording process going and to understand how they were going to uh, work alongside each other and to get through the project. So it has this sort of sense a little bit at the beginning of the blind leading the blind. But then um, as she begins to get more experienced, um, she becomes very good and adept at uh, understanding significance and making the recording uh, very important. She she talks about um, the workers in particular. And I think uh, I'll just see if I can just pull up a a quote here, um, which is really nice. She writes from Telfara, that work is in full swing. I am out in the cemetery all day. We have now got 47 skulls and only waiting for more to turn up to complete the round 50. There are two kuftis and about 50 men and boys on my beat. My job is to keep the boys at it and to record anything that turns up and to be on the spot generally. The Arabic moves on now uh, that I hear little else all day and I have to try to make make myself uh, understood should have seen me uh, sacking a boy yesterday. Nobody was more surprised than myself. It was a fine sight. Uh, 
The men are very good workers and really reliable. And Mr. S, that's Starkey, does the rounds frequently. The day is pretty full up. We come in for lunch at 12 till 1 and then carry on till sunset. After that, there's drawing to be done and general clearing up until bedtime. So that just gives a little bit of a sense. And that's written in um, uh, January 1928, uh, just of a kind of um, a day excavating. She talks about how she sacks one of the workers. And uh, I think her modest sort of uh, demeanor kind of it's, is counter to that, which is why she said she was quite surprised about that. Um, but I think it gives a general sense of um, the scale of the work that was going on with those large number of workers um, and also some of the findings that they were having and also just how how busy they were throughout the whole day. It was There's a lot of um, uh, sort of, they were really active and doing a lot after the dig as well, sort of recording and documenting the finds. And, and something I noticed um, while, while reading through the letters, especially in the first few chapters, was just how quickly she not only learned the ropes, but also be, became a very critical member of, of the archaeological expeditions that, that she was a part of. She was doing a lot of the drafting, a lot of the pottery recording. She was out in the field um, directing workers. And, and this is something that, you know, now takes several years training in, in a PhD program, as well as <laughs> a lot of field experience. And she was, she was out there for a few months and, and began doing this. So she, you know, definitely put in the hours. Um, but also, like you said, a little bit of learning as, as you go along, but that had to be done quickly. Absolutely. She was a quick learner and also was very efficient um, with the way that she worked and she worked very closely with others. So she didn't do all these things just on her own. I think she she worked uh, closely with her colleagues such as Lancaster Harding, uh, who was an archaeologist with her at the time. And so they often shared responsibilities such as the pottery recording and drawing and uh, also photography as well. Um, but yeah, she was a fast learner for sure and um, hard worker for sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the, the community of archaeologists uh, working in this region at the time was actually rather small. Uh, so who were some of Olga's primary acquaintances, friends, and, and colleagues who helped shape her life and, and sort of bring her in, into the discipline of archaeology? Absolutely. Um, I think, well, of course, first I, I mentioned before the Petries, so Flinders Petrie and Hilda Petrie, and they were both Olga's employers and, and her supporters, and they can have family connections too. So naturally, she was drawn to uh, the Petries, and they were very influential. I mean, uh, Flinders Petrie was a professor of um, archaeology of Egypt at uh, UCL, and had already he was already in his seventies, I believe, uh, when. Um, Olga was already traveling to Palestine. So they were well-established, um, uh, but also relatively new to Palestine in the sense that he'd worked in Egypt before and now had to work in Palestine because he couldn't work in Egypt anymore. Um, so they were kind of um, re-entering that arena of um Palestinian archaeology. Also, the Starkeys, uh, so James Leslie Starkey and his wife, um, Marjorie Starkey. So James Leslie Starkey was the director of the excavations at Tel Adawir, uh, ancient uh, Lakish or Lakish. And she really greatly respected him and they worked very closely together. And of course, as the director of the, the dig, um, this provided her with close opportunities to get access to that material and, and to learn more about it and understand the issues of chronology as well, which were very important at that particular time, and biblical interpretation as well, the uh, archaeology of uh, biblical archaeology at that time. I think Lancaster Harding was probably one of Olga's oldest and closest of friends, so Gerald Lancaster Harding, a British archaeologist who um, worked on these projects with the Petries, then at Tel Adawir, and then he went on to become uh, a, a, the uh, Director General and Inspector of Antiquities in Transjordan and later Jordan. They um, continued collaborating throughout uh, their lives and into the 1960s. Um, other archaeologists, I mean, there was 
Harris Dunscombe Colt, who's an American uh, archaeologist who's also a sponsor of these these digs, and his wife Teresa Colt, and they uh, they didn't spend too much time together, but they spent some some important time together in those earlier years. And of course, Olga's working with uh, people locally as well in Palestine, and these include the workers, the Palestinians, and the Egyptians um, who are on the digs, such as Mohammed Osman Al Krati, the cook, uh, and the other Kufti uh, workers, uh, Diab Basham, who was a chief assistant at Tel Adawir, um, among others. And of course, she's also intertwined with this network, uh, this very cosmopolitan network in Palestine and in Jerusalem, going to these lectures, meeting many people, um, British archaeologists and uh, museum specialists who are working there, um, but also um, Jewish archaeologists who are, uh, for example, at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, um, who are really emerging at that time. And those relationships uh, continue uh, through her life, um, in as she continues with her research uh, long after uh, her work um, at Tel Adawir as well. Um, so, in particular, she later on she develops a um, close correspondence with, for example, David Usishkin, who's um, went on to become the next excavator of Tel Adawir, um, ancient Lakish or Lakish. Uh, in Israel. So she continued to develop these relationships uh, over many years and decades. Um, but at, at that particular time, um, it was an interesting network. And there was this dynamic between, for example, um, the Petries and uh, the so-called anti-profs or anti-professor Petries that existed, such as W.F. Albright, um, William Foxwell Albright, who was then uh, based in Jerusalem. And there was a certain tension between those archaeologists, which is quite interesting. Yeah, as, as these letters show, the, the archaeologists working in the field didn't always uh, get along. <laughs> um, could you speak a little bit about how these letters shine a light on, on the dramatic element or sort of the personal side of uh, the community of archaeologists that she was working with, uh, specifically between Petrie and, and Starkey? Um, which ends up being sort of a large rift in in the field at the time. That's right. Yeah. So um, I think that the background to this is also um, represented in in other works and and biographical works related to Petrie, Flinders Petrie and Hilda Petrie. Uh, so this is this is already known. But I think what the the book provides and the letters provide is a little bit more context to that and the wide interpersonal issues that existed. So I think that, you know, Starkey was um, himself uh, effectively a, a self-made archaeologist in the sense that he, he had learned uh, about archaeology as an, um, effectively as an amateur, and he became really adept at, uh, at digging. He started with Egypt, and then um, he ended up working on a project for the University of uh, Pennsylvania uh, Museum. And then he he continued with his work with the Petries in Palestine, and uh, um, it was clear that Starkey had ambitions to start his own dig and his own project. Um, and Tel Adawir, uh, ancient Lakish, was was a key site that was of interest. And I think that that time, uh, Flinders Petrie he'd excavated the site of Tel Al Hesi already um, in the late 19th century, so quite some time before, over 30 years before then. And he thought that that was the site of um, ancient Lachish, which is known from the Bible. It's also represented in the um, the famous reliefs uh, from Sennacherib's uh, palace at Nineveh in northern Iraq, which are now displayed in the British Museum. So there was this connection to try to identify this ancient biblical site um, and to excavate it. So uh, Starkey was really interested in that. He wanted to go it alone effectively. And so that actually led to uh, many members of, of Petrie's team leaving uh, Tel El Ajul to start this new project. And of course, Petrie wasn't too pleased about this. Um, 
but there were other personal dimensions that led to that and it was uh, largely related to dig life and aspects of um for, in particular it seems that the relationships between the petries and these younger team members often wanting to do uh, new things or come up with new ideas new theories or just simply to have a good time sometimes they just wanted to let loose and play some some records and uh, play the drums and have a bit of a party and that that wasn't always appreciated and i think that um hilda petrie in particular um had certain ideas about how the uh dig should be operated and how people should be um behaving on these projects so i think that that did lead to a rift and it was really an, a need you know i think that Olga herself, she was torn because, of course, the Petries were her mentors and supporters and family friends. So how could she really abandon them um, and leave them? But at the end, it was, I think, it had to happen um, and the opportunity arose. But Petrie continued with his excavations at Ajul and then later at other sites as well. But his practices also were under scrutiny. Uh, his dating methods uh, his recording methods were seen as somewhat outdated as well um, by his contemporaries. And I mentioned earlier, William Foxwell Albright and um, his particular views on how, you know, excavation should be conducted and uh, publishing research. So there was this new paradigm that was emerging and Petries were seen as kind of um, not really fitting into that uh, kind of mode as much. So I think that was one of the emerging uh, issues. Um, and it led to this 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 rift uh, or this change, but I think that they still they still continued to be in contact with each other, and it wasn't. I don't think there was any major bad feeling at the end of it. Yeah, I, I think that all also goes to show that uh, some things today are not not all that different than they were a hundred years ago. <laughs> no, that's true. I think that today, I think they were quite. I think that that time there was so much so many new things that were being discovered that um, people were just sort of catching up on what, how things, you know, were emerging from the ground at that time. There were many, many important new discoveries happening and major digs that were going on. Megiddo um, by University of Chicago, for example, Samaria with um, the Palestine Exploration Fund and uh, Hebrew University of Jerusalem and uh, Yale as well. So there were lots of... Um, new digs, discovering new things. And of course, there are going to be disagreements and exchanges um, uh, happening at that time. So most of the letters in this volume are uh, from Olga to members of her family, her mother or, or her father. Um, and so they, they mostly talk about her own personal exploits uh, as well and, and give a record of how she's doing, some of the things she's taking part in. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about what's in these rec uh, in these letters, uh, in terms of uh, her own experience on the dig, and in particular uh, her role in setting up clinics at the some of the dig camps that she was a part of, I found that particularly interesting. Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, Olga Tofnell was uh, she wrote mostly to her parents, as as I as I mentioned, and as you mentioned, the the ones to her father. Are, less frequent um but the ones to her mother really she's opening up and it's important to note that it's likely that she, her mother was probably reading these letters out to friends and relations um because there are references in the letter to things like don't share this you know beyond this letter you know so it's obvious that most of the contents of these letters were being shared and um the aspects of the non-archaeological side i think the clinics are so interesting because um she really took this um took this project up and expanded it this was something that relates to public health and intersections with archaeology so she is talking about how she writes about how these clinics were really emerging at this time and she's Actually, um, it wasn't her that started the first one, but uh, she took it on um, uh, as a particular project after seeing it. Uh, she worked with a doctor who was one of the 
project members at one of the earlier digs in, in Palestine. But then it was really at um, Tel Aviv that she took it on uh, to be a much larger project. And so these clinics were really to serve populations locally, the vi- the villagers, the workers uh, who were engaged in the project, but also the people on the on the dig team as well. And they're primarily to treat first aid. And also in the low-lying areas, malaria was very common. So uh, quinine um, and other sort of malarial treatments were uh, needed. Um, And many of the dig team members actually had malaria as well. There's also... um, uh, there's also in the other areas, eye, eye diseases were very common, and that was a very common problem in uh, in the region, particularly in rural areas where maybe medicines and um, new uh, techniques in dealing with eye diseases just weren't available. So in this more rural community in uh, just southwest of Jerusalem, um, there maybe just wasn't access to particular clinics. And so setting up what became known as Olga's Eye Hospital, um, this was uh, a really important aspect for helping the local communities uh, with really treatable diseases that could have major health effects if they went, went untreated, things like just conjunctivitis, but also trachoma, um, and things like this. So she actually talks in some of the letters, for example, um, if I can just pull up a, a quote of one of these letters, um, let me just find it here. So yeah, she writes to Dr. John Strathern, who was at the uh, St. John's um, Ophthalmic Hospital in Jerusalem, and she'd learned a lot from him uh, and received some training. And she writes to him uh, in February 1933, I'm now seeing between 30 and 40 people a day here, and a large proportion of them are eye cases. Funnily enough, one of the Kabeba men actually saw me when I was at the hospital in my white coat, so my prestige is slightly higher than it should be. I try to impress on them the importance of going up to you and offer them notes to take up to up when they go. They, there seem to be many bad cases in the village with heavy discharge, chiefly among the children. And then she goes on to talk about some of the specific treatments that she's uh, trying out for the young children and asking for some advice. So she was really involved in this uh, to a high level. And it's easy to see just with those numbers. It mu- she was attracting many people to come uh, from the surrounding area. And people would sometimes walk for miles uh, to get such treatments as well. And so uh, I think that she was providing a really important service. And that these insights really give us a picture that's not usually represented in archaeological reports. So that's a really important part of the um, the letters is giving us some some of these more insights into uh, public health and intersections with archaeology. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested in the intersection between archaeology and um, sort of the malaria outbreaks during the 1920s and 1930s in Palestine. Another another book that does a really great job of uh, discussing that is Eric Klein's recent book on the excavations at Megiddo, in which they the the archaeologists there, in collaboration with the Mandate government uh, as well as some local villages, took it performed a massive backfill of the marshes around the site, and it's just showing the, these archaeologists sort of putting their excavation experience to work. Um, to, to fill in wetlands and try to sort of eradicate malaria as, as a problem for their own sake, because people consistently were getting malaria at this time. So I, I found that that overlap uh, very interesting and, and sort of com- combating malaria at the excavation site keeps popping up in, in these historical accounts. Yeah, that's right. And there's also a case of that with Talel Ajul as well, where mm-hmm. um, uh, Petrie had worked with the mandate government to uh, bring in, uh, first of all, I believe that they were um, prisoners, um, uh, so kind of convict labor to come and uh, create drainage channels to help flush out the, the, the waters in the rains and the flush out the malaria, uh, the malarial mosquitoes and their eggs from, the, um, from those channels. 
um, and later on hiring workers to do the same. And these are the same workers that also would help out with the excavations. So it was seen as hand in hand, and it was all about you know managing the land, agriculture, as well as um, making the area sort of safer and um, healthier for not just the people working on the dig, the foreigners coming there from overseas, but but the local people as well. Uh, something that you you alluded to earlier was that a lot of these letters take on almost a travelogue tone, uh, especially when Olga is on the road traveling between her home um, and, and uh, the archaeological field. Um, specifically when it comes to travel and, and being a tourist in these countries in a little bit, can you talk a little bit more about how, how that's that shows up in her letters? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the travel is really interesting. And I will say one thing with the book in preparation for this. I mean, when we were, Ros and I were trying to find a publisher for this book, and we're very pleased that UCL Press um, took on the project. Um, but we were really having a lot of difficulty in trying to identify uh, a publisher, you know, because we would approach people and they would say, so what, what, what shelf does this go on? Is this the travel book section? is this biography is this archaeology is this history and we were like well it's all of those things actually so i think the travel aspect is actually really interesting travel and tourism because it was emerging at this time uh communications and transportation was transformed uh through uh telegraphs and and also through radio communications and then you had the steamers that were going between um England and the Mediterranean and through the Suez Canal. So there were um no you could you could travel to Palestine. It would take you over a week to get there, but uh, you could you could do that actually in just under a week if you if you if you man you could manage that. Uh flying was completely out of the question except if you were very, very rich. It's extremely expensive. There was an airport that developed um and, and um was constructed uh near Gaza. So uh, there, but mostly it was travel by ship and also by car and rail. Um, and she had a real zest for travel. Um, and I think that is captured in the way that she writes about her travel experiences. I think that when she she had several journeys, most of them obviously by sea to and from the the uh, digs, she was able to visit many archaeological sites in the Mediterranean, like Pompeii and Athens and Malta, and get an understanding of what was happening there. She also uh, took the opportunity to go on an overland trip uh, in um, by a motor car with groups of her team members, uh, which would last about a month from uh, Jerusalem uh, all the way to uh, Europe and to back to London. And that happened in 1933, which at that time, there weren't really complete roads in all of the places that they were driving. So that was quite um, an experience. And she writes about that. And there's a great book that was written uh, shortly after that by H.H. Uh, H. McWilliams called The Diabolical Strength, which is I urge you to take a look at if you can find it, because it's a fantastic travelogue as well. Um, she traveled locally, you know, to archaeological sites and throughout Palestine and to Lebanon and, and Syria. Um, and actually, some of the details she writes about are fantastic. So I, I, I want to quote one of the letters, which is from uh, May the 10th, 1933, when they're visiting Damascus and they go to the um, Azam Palace. So she writes, uh, Bar, Mac and I went to see the Azam Palace a house which is preserved in its original state. First, a rose-filled courtyard approached through a narrow arched door, then a series of rooms opening from it, all decorated in the best Arab style. One green and pink room was reminiscent of modern decorators, but where they just missed, where they just missed the others succeed. Three long windows on two sides of the room, and with three alcoves on each of the other two sides, the panelling all a mellow green, and the recessed part of the alcoves a salmon pink. The panels in the green woodwork all picked out in the faintest of little designs like Victorian nosegays. There were baths which had 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 fine glazed tiles that and at least half a dozen reception rooms, none of which pleased me quite so much as the green and pink room. Um, and so just to get a sense of this uh, level of detail that she's providing and the, the things that um, 
she's talking about in these letters, writing home about, um, give you a sense of um, uh, how engaged she was with her surroundings and wanting to share that and document it. And maybe there's information there that might be useful to uh, modern researchers about those perceptions as well. So in in the preface of the book, or the the preface of the book, uh, acknowledges that Olga often carried with her during her travels and, and during her time in Palestine and short time in Egypt, uh, that she often carried with her many of the prejudices uh, or biases of uh, a privileged class European abroad in a somewhat colonial setting at the time. Um, but her interactions with and her attitude towards local Egyptians and then Palestinians is a really complex one. Um, and in fact, apparently changes over time, uh, over the course of her, her more than decade there. Could you talk a little bit about how Olga reckoned with her status as a foreigner uh, in Palestine at this somewhat contentious time? Yeah, definitely. That's a really good question. And it, is a, it was a big challenge trying to kind of understand this from the letters because um, the letters don't always convey uh, what her real thoughts are. Um, and they do contain some aspects which, um, you know, of prejudice and uh, that I think were quite normal among sort of society, British society at that time. Uh, for example, certain words they might use which could be viewed and were viewed and are viewed as uh, anti-Semitic in tone at some points, uh, but also in respect to, for example, natives and that idea of people, local people being um, uh, sort of that, you know, that she is trying to help to improve their lives in a sense and doing something for the greater good. So it's almost kind of a, it's close to what you could describe as sort of a missionary sort of style. And I think that idea of certainly the British Empire, that time of being kind of this idea of being paternalistic. And I would say that in this case with Olga, it's more of a maternalistic uh, ideal. And you can see this, I think, with the clinic as well. In her later life, she gave um, a, uh, towards the end of her life, she gave a lecture at the site of Tel Adawir, ancient Lakish, um, at the invitation of David Usishkin and the Hebrew University of uh, Jerusalem, um, sorry, um, Tel Aviv University. And she talked a bit about her experience at that time. And she did that earlier on, she would refer to local people as natives, you know, and now, of course, that is not acceptable at all. But one of the things she writes about um, and is recorded in her in this in this lecture is she wrote, uh, she said, there was one good thing, perhaps that we did not, uh, we did through having that system and employing the locals who were then in a very poor way, and had a very tiny living standard. It was lovely to see during the time that we were working, they were working for us how the small skinny boys and the pale girls who worked as our basket children grew and flourished and their faces filled out. That was something I feel was a real contribution to this part of the world. So again, it's that sort of humanitarian aspect that comes through. Um, but also she's referring to uh, sort of people, you can really understand the the major differences um, and inequalities that existed between these uh, more wealthy, privileged Europeans, British uh, archaeologists, and the people who are living, they're living among and with in the countryside, the Bedouin Fellahim uh, of southern Palestine. So um, there are some other prejudices that you see in the letters, which are kind of interesting and uh, a little bit disturbing as well. Uh, there's one I mentioned, uh, anti-Semitism earlier, and there's there's one letter which is kind of intriguing. We're not really sure what quite happened, but uh, as I mentioned, the you know, Olga had interactions with um with Jewish archaeologists who were there in Palestine. And there's one by the name of Michael Aviona, who was is well-known, famous archaeologist uh, in, in Israel. And that time um, in the Palestine was associated with the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem and later Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel. And he joined the Farah, Tel Farah excavations in 1928. But as we hear from one of these letters, he joined this dig, but then he apparently only lasted one week. And it's alluded to the letters that this was 
in some way related to his Jewish identity. So there's some kind of prejudice took place, whether that was from the workers or from within the camp. We don't know exactly what happened, but it's evident that he was not welcome at this project, and it was because of his Jewish identity. We're dealing with, at the time here, um, great tensions between um, Arab, British, and Jewish uh, people in Mandate period Palestine. Um, the Great Arab Revolt takes place in the uh, mid to late 1930s. There have already been disturbances and riots that have taken place um, because of the um, increased uh, immigration to Palestine uh, by people from uh, by Ju- uh, Jewish people from Europe. And the response to that from the uh, local Arab Palestinian populations. Um, uh, because of the scale of that. And um, of course, this is eventually, uh, we have the emergence of Israel and the um, uh, the Israeli War of Independence, uh, also for the Palestinians, the Nakba in 1948. So all of these things are happening at this time. So there are these tensions that exist and the uh, archaeologists are working mostly within the Arab context uh, with the workers, but also they're engaging with uh, uh, Jewish archaeologists and researchers in Palestine as well. So changing focus a little bit, uh, Olga Tufnell was a pioneering archaeologist um, and uh, in a field that was at the time dominated by men. And she became an incredibly well-respected, published archaeologist, despite not holding uh, sort of an academic title. Um, Yet her name has not perhaps up until now, been discussed as uh, or discussed on par with many other women archaeologists at the time, like Dorothy Garrett or Margaret Murray. So why don't we hear as much about Olga Tufnell uh, as we do about many of her contemporaries? That's a really good question. And I think that relates in part to um, perhaps her academic career during her own lifetime. And um, she did publish during uh, extensively uh, many articles and was well respected as an archaeologist in her own right um, through her articles and the the uh, publications, which are very important today. Um, but uh, because she never gained a formal degree in archaeology and she didn't hold an academic post, um, she didn't carry perhaps the same weight as some of those other um, women archaeologists, such as Dorothy Garrett, uh, who was a professor of archaeology, and also Margaret Murray, who um, conducted many excavations from the 19th to the 20th, early 20th century, uh, based in London, and she uh, in the Middle East, and also Kathleen Kenyon, of course, uh, who is very well known um, as a prominent archaeologist, and they were contemporaries in the 1930s, and maybe if Olga Tofnell had taken a degree and become, um, you know, had that formal training, maybe she would have advanced and become um, more in the academic realm. So I think that she preferred to perhaps remain a bit more in the background and to do the steady work of research and to do things that she wanted to do, that that pursuing her own interests in uh, archaeology and museum exhibitions in studies of scarab seals and amulets she was just interested in in doing her own thing i think in some senses but also retaining that that respect and that community of 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 archaeologists so i think that's the main reason that we haven't heard so much about olga tufnell Uh, the the apex of her archaeological career may have been in the the preparation and, and eventual publication of the lakish volumes um and at the site her experience was really critical to the success of the excavations. Um, and, and the Lachish volumes remain, uh, Lachish is a, is a critically important site today and is still under excavation today. Um, sometimes even still confirming Tufnell's original hypotheses. So is, is there any insight? Is, is it, I mean, this is all just to say that her, her contributions at Lachish are still important to the field of archaeology today. Is there any insight from her letters into how she felt about her work at the time? Did she recognize that her contributions would have such an impact on the field, uh, like an enduring legacy here? 
that's a great question. I'm not sure she, I think she knew how important the work was, especially in terms of the careful documentation and the preparation for the publication. I think at the time when she was excavating, she didn't really know that she would be so closely involved in the publication project. And it was because, um, of course, James Leslie Starkey, who died in 1938. So um, he would have he would have been the, the main editor and person who would have would have brought this publication to fruition. I'm sure Olga would have been involved, but she she took on the project um, herself in the um, certainly more after in, in the period uh, just before World War II and just after World War II as well. So I I don't think she would have fully understood her her important role in it, but I think her her real attention to detail. And her understanding of the importance of context, the importance of chronology um, to understanding. And this this attention to detail with the stratigraphy as well. The, uh, just to add that this, the excavations that were done there at uh, La Quiche were not necessarily the, of the greatest standard even for that time there was there was a bit of loss of context you know it was more focused on larger area excavations and um at that time they hadn't really instituted the kind of uh, the wheeler um kenyan method of stratigraphic excavation which has a lot more detail fine grain um so they were relying on a kind of combination of more modern techniques but combining that with the petri approach to archaeology so i think that her attention to detail helps to give more context to the archaeological finds and that's why they still have such a great value today and also the focus on the pottery and understand and the, and the scarabs as well these scarab seals which really give um they're very important for the chronological uh, sequence for uh, this particular site. So I think she didn't realize quite at the time because she was so familiar with it. This really helped her as she prepared the publication. Uh, now, your co-editor on this volume, Roz Henry, had the chance to meet Olga Tufnell in 1955 as a student. Um, and then decades later became interested in Olga's work when her papers passed into the archive at the Palestine Exploration Fund. Uh, and Ross Henry prepared an obituary for Olga when she passed away in 19, 1985. Uh, how did you become interested in this topic or in this project uh, and in the life and career of Olga Tufnell? Thank you. Yes. Um, uh, first of all, tribute to great tribute to Roz, uh, Roz Henry. And she started off really as a sort of assistant to Olga, helping her out with the Lakish publication um, at the Institute of Archaeology in London. And so that's how she got to know Olga uh, personally. And with the letters, um, she was aware of these letters through Heather Bell, who was then the librarian at the Institute of Archaeology in the 1980s before she retired. And those letters and the photographs ended up in the archives at the Palestine Exploration Fund. And Roz really wanted to do something with these letters. It was a suggestion of Roger Murray at um, the uh, uh, Ashmolean at the University of Oxford, but also later with Jonathan Tubb at the British Museum, providing that support to allow uh, Roz to research and to make copies of the letters so that then she could start putting them into order and transcribing them, which is a huge job. Um, it was at that time in, two, in 2007, I was working at the British Museum uh, on a research project, the Telesidea Cemetery Publication Project with Jonathan Tubb. And Roz was there and we met and I learned about these letters for the first time. I'd been working uh, on the side doing some interesting research on um, a British archaeologist called Philip Guy, P.L.O. Guy, who'd worked at the Megiddo uh, on the excavations then. I'd written an article uh, for the Palestine Exploration Quarterly. So I was really kind of in that mode of history of archaeology as a topic. And so um, it was Jonathan who suggested sort of maybe you can help Roz out by providing some of the or providing information for the uh, introductory materials to provide the archaeological context you know more about um, the excavations and what they found and so that's really how it started and it took a while it took a long time for us to finish this project but I think we went from um, 
it being an archaeology history of archaeology project to being a broadly more broadly a social history project as well because we had to bring in so many different aspects of uh, politics culture sociology um, uh, networks of people biographical networks that it became a much bigger project than just about archaeology so that's how I got into it and um, it was really a labor of love in the end to kind of work on this and to work with Roz and we're so pleased that now it can be shared with everyone because it's available as an open access resource on uh, the UCL Press uh, website. So we're so we're so very pleased this can be accessible to a broader audience. Right. So now, now that these letters are accessible to a wider audience with commentary uh, and annotations uh, in this volume, how do you think these letters might be useful for future research efforts on the archaeology and history of the region? That's a great question. I think that um, certainly they're going to be of interest to a wide range of people. Um, for archaeologists, who work in the region in um, Israel, Palestine, and the wider Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean region. And I'll mention Cyprus as well as another place that's represented, so even Cypriot archaeology too. Um, the widening out of the relevance of archaeology uh, to society is important, so that's one aspect. And the understanding of the political um, context of of uh, archaeologists working in, in those regions and in that time period. Also, uh, as I mentioned before, with the aspects of public health, um, I hope this may draw the attention of people who are interested in aspects of perhaps colonial medicine. I think sociology in general, I think those interested in the history of the British mandate and the mandates in the Middle East will find this of interest. And also, I just want to say that it's a narrative, you know, if you just take away all the notes and the, the introductory materials, these are just a pleasure to read as a travelogue, as a kind of memoir. Mm. Uh, you can just enjoy reading this as a story um, and as it, as it unfolds. So I say just even for the general reader, this is uh, of interest and I hope that it will draw some attention just to uh, the way people lived in those times. So uh, hoping it will have... Um, some interest in broader fields than just archaeology. And personally, what was the most exciting part of working on this collection? Uh, any anything revelatory that you learned uh, in reading and, and processing these letters? I really, I loved piecing together the puzzles. Um, so you know, with Ros, we would always be trying to work out what was the date of that letter because sometimes they wouldn't have the years on them. So we'd have to kind of work out which year it was based on the days of the week that I mentioned in the letters and looking at calendars or when was Ramadan in 1933, you know, things like that. So just trying to solve problems and, and also the, um, the, uh, the handwriting, <laughs> uh, Olga Tufnell's handwriting was challenging <laughs> to decipher in some cases. So uh, we had many mysteries and I want to thank um, Robert Davies, the, um, who was an editor who helped us, with the volume uh, with, with UCL Press, because he solved many of these mysteries. We could not work out what certain words were. So we're very, very grateful to him. Um, and I think the fun thing, I, I think the public health thing is probably the thing that I found the most interesting. It was known before, but I think I, I, I became more aware of how important the aspect of public health and humanitarianism was in archeology span and how that as a subject is something that should be explored further, not just in that period of time, but in later periods too, because they do intersect with each other um, into the present day as well. So I think that's an important area that I hope some other researchers will take on board in the future. Great. Uh, well, Dr. Green, I think we've taken up enough of your time here. I, I just have one more question for you. Uh, what's next? Or are you able to share Anything about a project you're working on now or what might be coming out uh, next? Great. Thank you so much, Sam. I really enjoyed this. I, I, I wanted to say with the future work, I, I'm not sure where the Tufnell project or the archives will take me into or take us with Ros as well into the future. Um, as I mentioned, it will be interesting to explore that public health angle a little bit further, maybe tie it in with some of the... Um, archives that are available at the St. John's Ophthalmic Hospital, Eye Hospital in Jerusalem. 
if they're available. Um, in other projects I'm working on, I'm, I'm working on the British Museum Telesidea Cemetery publication project, have been for many years, and that's an ongoing uh, research project and publication project of mine. And also through my work at ACOR, the American Center of Research in Amman and Jordan, uh, the Temple of the Winged Lions um, publication project, which is a really important Nabataean and Roman site in Petra. So I've been involved in working with the archives and also um, deciphering and understanding the archaeological excavations of this important site as well. But now I'm transitioning back into museums at Miami University, and I'm actually quite interested in exploring um, a particular topic that I've worked on in the past as well, and that relates to collecting practices and provenance research. So for um, art and archaeology. So that's another area that I'm interested in. But, you know, we, we have to see how those, uh, how the time frame uh, works on those kinds of projects. But those are the, some of the things that I'm, I'm interested in at the moment. Excellent. Dr. Green, thank you so much for your time. Olga Tufnell's Perfect Journey uh, is out now from UCL Press and is available for free digital download on their website. And thank you for tuning in, and uh, I look forward to everyone joining us next time.